Hey everyone, I want to make a quick announcement about a uh, drummer in our community, Keith Dudek. He's a drummer here in Nashville, but he's been in the hospital for a little over a month, fallen victim to COVID, and it's been a tough road with some very scary moments. Our friend Lee Kelly and former guest uh, has been keeping us up to date. There's a GoFundMe page to help cover Keith's extensive medical expenses that we know that is going to burden him uh, when he gets over this. But it's been a tough road, and we are praying for him, thinking about him. And if you're in a position to help even just a few dollars here or there, I'm including a link to Keith's GoFundMe page. Uh, so I just want to make a quick announcement about that. This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Mark Stepro. Mark is currently based in Los Angeles, but he is originally from my neck of the woods, uh, just a little north of Columbus, Ohio. He is currently performing and recording with singer-songwriter-slash-producer Butch Walker, with whom he's been working with since 2011, as well as singer-songwriter Brett Denon. He currently recorded the upcoming album by The Wallflowers called Exit Wounds, their first release in 10 years. They're currently doing TV and radio appearances to promote the album. Along with many other projects that Mark's been involved with, uh, he has also performed or recorded with people like Leon Bridges, Panic at the Disco, Gavin DeGraw, Jewel, Keith Urban, Rob Thomas, Jackson Brown, Shooter Jennings, just to name a few. Uh, a lot of these uh, performances have taken Mark all over the world and uh, on some late shows, including The Late Show with David Letterman, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, Craig Ferguson, Carson Daly, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and CBS This Morning. To find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done on Working Drummer Podcast, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as iTunes, where you can rate and review this podcast. This helps us grow. This helps us reach new listeners and put on a better podcast for you. So find us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Stitcher and Spotify. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I have been doing here for over six years, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer for as little as a dollar per month. You have access to the educational material that we provide on our Patreon page provided by former guests. If Patreon isn't your thing, we have a PayPal button on our website, workingdrummer.net. You can go there and donate. We appreciate all the support over the years that we've gotten from you, our listeners, and we are excited about what 2021 is bringing to the table, and we hope you are too. This episode is sponsored by Sonatus USA. Get it right at the source is the most common advice we hear when recording drums. Tuning and mic placement are a great place to start, but what shouldn't be overlooked is the space where you're playing. The time and energy it takes to work up and record a great performance shouldn't be wasted in a sonically bad environment. Investing in a proper blend of absorption, diffusion, and bass traps will improve the quality of your recordings just as much as the investment you make in your playing instruments and recording equipment. 
Whether you're tracking, rehearsing, mixing, or just practicing, having a great sounding room is essential. Sonatus USA provides the products and consultation to get your drums sounding the best they can in whatever space you're working with. Check them out at sonatususa.com. That's S-O-N-I-T-U-S-U-S-A dot com. And you can also check out my interviews with Anthony Gramani from Sonatus on episodes 306, 308, and 313. We also have videos of all three of those interviews on our YouTube channel. So this episode is kind of a long one, but if, if you're hip to the way podcasts work, uh, you can stop and start at any time, and I encourage you to do so. There's so many just great morsels of information, and uh, Mark is just so articulate in and in, in how he describes things that are, I, I feel like are so useful to anyone if you're just starting out, if you're a seasoned veteran. Uh, he just he, he really does such a great job describing uh, his different situations that he's been put into that I think are useful for the working drummer. Uh, also, I think there's just this uh, there's a, there's a cool history between Mark and I, and so we get into that and spend some time. But there's lots of things to extract from that conversation that uh, is personal with his experience, but I think is applicable to everyone. And I just I really loved uh, connecting with Mark. We've been in touch back in touch, I should say, uh, ever since I started the podcast. It was a great way for us to reconnect. So uh, this has been a long time coming, and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Stepro. It's a real watershed moment in your life when you come to the conclusion that music isn't a meritocracy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you're just, and in fact, I will quote one of your big heroes, uh, the professor, Neil, Neil Peart, uh, <laughs> in, in one of his videos, he talked about, I think it was when he moved to like London when he was a kid to basically, he wanted to become a famous rock star. And he said, at the time, I just sort of assumed that if you just got good, yeah. And then you're officially, objectively good at the drums. Then the universe just kind of takes it from there and you just sort of present yourself and you're like, okay, cool. I'm ready for, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Turn it on. And it, you know, it eventually obviously turned on for him, you know, quite effectively, but it's true that you can do all the stuff, but I don't know. There's many, many facets in terms of uh, point A to point sort of making a living doing it. Right, right. And, and I think you had that moment too. And, I, and, and you talk about it in an article where you approached a teacher and I'm guessing it was Bob and you said, hey, show me stuff. I want to be a good drummer. And the, and the, and the person said, and I, I don't know if it was Bob or not, but they, they said, all right, well, what am I supposed to teach you? That's yeah, th th that's a very, very watershed moment for me. Um, one that I still kind of check in with, uh, to this day. Um, so tiny backstory is just that you and I, uh, 
went to the same university in Columbus, Ohio, and the head of the percussion department there uh, is a fellow called Bob Rydop, who I, I adore. I think he's wonderful. Um, and on one of, it was one of my first days there. It was like, um, so when you're a freshman, you are, you know, as part of the curriculum, you are assigned a weekly drum lesson with the instructor. Um, I actually went to that college for the purposes of studying with Jim Ed, who's another guy who I suspect we'll eventually talk about. Uh, but I met with Bob started at the, at the school and it was, it totally was kind of like a, a whiplash moment. Um, because <laughs> I, I went in on the first day and, and I was just sort of like, like, hi, I'm, I'm here for my, my drum lesson or whatever. And he's like, he's like, okay, wh- <laughs> what, what do you want? And I was like, oh, I just, I mean, I just sort of thought you would, you were going to teach me a drum lesson. And he was like, yes, what do you want to know about the drums? And I was like, oh, dude, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, all of a sudden it's hitting me that I'm like fully unprepared for this thing that I didn't even realize. And I was like, I just sort of assumed you had a, like a curriculum or some sort of a syllabus or some game plan as to how this was going to go down or whatever. And he, and this is the whiplash moment. And, you know, I'm, maybe I'm overselling this, the, the drama of this just to illustrate the larger point. But what he basically said was, listen, if, if by some miracle of God, you're lucky enough to do this for a job, you're going to wake up in the morning, like you and I both woke up today. And it's like, say you have a gig at night, right? That's 12 hours that you don't, nobody's really making you do anything. So you should probably figure out how to fill that time productively and figure out what it is that you want to get good at because nobody's going to like, no employers or artists or managers are going to call you up at nine in the morning and be like, Hey man, are you working on those bi- bichronal Balkan odd meter rhythms today? Cause we were kind of, we were kind of hoping you were getting cracking on that. You know what I mean? Like nobody does that. So you're like, I could just watch TV all day or whatever, go to the park. So clearly what he's saying is like, you got to like becomes, you know, not to be all like self-helpy or Tony Robbins about, but like you got to be like a self-starter in terms of like find something that you want to like figure out how to do and pursue it. And I will, I promise you this to this day, I can go to my studio and keep myself busy for three hours. Like oh, yeah, I just easily. find, you know, I can totally find stuff to work on. And it, it's because of that, you know, that was actually a very teachable moment. I don't know if he was just being cranky at the time or, or whatever, but it was, a, it was a point that stuck very, very, it, it, the, the point landed. Bob always had a great way of kind of, pushing back and making you think about those things. And, and, and there was a time in my, that time in my life, it, it took me a while to understand his approach. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm right there with you. And I, I, I was very intimidated by him. And sure. then as you proved yourself and you hung in there and you stayed with the program, he was like, okay, you got this. But, you know, even halfway through my freshman year, I was commuting because I lived close enough. Right. And he said, okay, this needs to stop. He goes, if you are actually serious about this, it's time for you to move to campus and be oh. here and you have access to all the equipment. And uh, at the end of the day of all your classes, you're in the practice room, you're getting stuff together. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I was like, oh, because I was just like, oh, this is like because I went to Fort Hayes School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, commuted and, you know, you're kind of still in that zone uh in that schedule especially being local of going to school going home i was living at home for free uh you know in it and he's like no this is college this is serious this is the conservatory it's time to dig in and spend all week all day 
for the school year working. And then during, yeah, that's interesting. And then during the summer, you're shedding and getting ready yeah. for the next year. He wanted you to be part of the community. Yes, and so exactly, and and that was a thing that I was like, oh, he wants me to work harder because he sees. I saw it as as a moment where he was pushing me. He was like, if you're going to do this, we want you to do it because we see <laughs> potential in you as opposed to, yeah, keep commuting. You probably won't last until next year or whatever. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Side side note, that was always, a, I found a slight not to be negative, but that was a disappointing element of capital of that unit. So we went to a, a little private uh, liberal arts school in the Midwest called Capital University. I always tell people this because they don't know where it is. It's It's just sort of in the same conference of and in the same league of like a Kenyon or an Oberlin or a Denison, which are actually small colleges that people on the coasts are more familiar with, I feel like. Um, but that was kind of a bummer to me that it was because I grew up an hour north of there. Um, and it was, it did, unfortunately, when I got there, it had a little bit more of a commuter campus feel than I maybe was aware was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I had to, I had to stay. I didn't have the opportunity to, to commute, but yeah, it's true. Cause it's, it's located right in, in the middle of Columbus, which is probably part of the reason. Cause if you know, and it makes sense financially for you probably at the time, cause you're 18 years old and you have a bed in a room that's yeah six miles away or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. And it was, I always tell people it was kind of in the shadow of Ohio state for know, sure, you know, in that. In if that. I say if I say to somebody at a party, "Oh, I went to college in Columbus," they'll say first they'll say Columbus, Ohio, and then I'll say yeah, and then they'll say, "Oh, so like Ohio State?" And it's like no, it's it's small. Yeah, you know that yeah. school was. There were more janitors employed by Ohio State University than students at our <laughs> college. I've, I've, I have to assume. It was. It's a messy place, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's a lot. well, it it is actually. <laughs> I know it is. It still is. <laughs> yeah, despite the urban outfitters that took place, uh, that replaced many of the clubs that I used to play. That's a at. whole other conversation for sure. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Uh, yeah, no, that was a great thing. A, a, a really important place for me. Uh, it's where I met my wife. Did you meet your wife at Capital? No, I knew her before that, but we. Okay. she went to college at Ohio Northern, which was also in that same conference. Okay. You wanted to go to Capitol to study with Jim Ed Cobbs. That was kind of your introduction to Capitol was your private lessons with Jim Ed. Now, Jim Ed is somebody I, I – when I started as a freshman at Capitol, he was moving from Texas and continuing his education at Capitol. So he, okay. he – it was – my first year was his first year, but he was – an upperclassman. Gotcha. Okay. He, he graduated uh, before I did. And for about a semester, I had him as my private teacher. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So we were, huh. you know, we were students together. And then he was always the upperclassman who you always kind of followed and looked up to. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jim Ed, I mean, gosh, you can take it from here. But I mean, he's just uh, such an amazing, such a sweetheart. Uh, such an amazing musician. Uh, as I got to know him, I feel like m just being a fellow student with him was invaluable. And then to have him as a semester, I still think of the lessons that we have and the uh, concepts of composition that he mm -hmm. taught me hmm. and uh, feel and phrasing yep. from the one semester that I had. But and then living in the community for five years after I graduated from Capitol, seeing seeing him around uh, as a musician, I just I had had the utmost respect for him. 
Yeah. So, so Jim Ed uh, ties into uh, the the sort of nature of this podcast in a really um, serendipitous kind of way because, like I said, I you know I I literally went to college because not college in general, but uh, that specific college because he was a t- uh, member of the faculty there. I wanted to study with him. Um, but so one of the things that I'm a real fan of, uh, as it applies to your podcast is literally the, the branding of it as like working drummer. Okay. So that's like a, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a cool niche lane. Everybody wants to have Thomas Lang on their podcast and I'm sure he's a lovely guy, I, you know, um, but I'm actually more interested in the guy who plays with Kenny Vaughn at the 12 South tap room on Tuesday night. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say unsung heroes because these people have very like vibrant careers or sure, whatever, just, sure. just people who aren't on the you know tip of the tongue of every person who's sort of familiar with sort of drum celebrity zeitgeist or whatever, literally working drummers. So this guy that I went to study with, um, I can still remember going to his house. So back up, my, my parents who are super conservative Midwest Republicans do not have a rock bone in their bodies between the two of them. Um, <laughs> zero. My, my, my mom though, God bless her. She, we, we grew up an hour North of Columbus and she would drive me down because her sister lived in Grandview and she would drive me down to that drum store that you worked at. And that I ultimately later worked at called Columbus pro percussion owned by Jim Rupp that everybody loves yeah. with good reason. And my mom would drive me down there and she would literally, so she's an hour deep already. I'm in there doing the lesson. She's, shopping at the pier one imports or reading a book in the car or whatever, and then drives me back. And she did, <laughs> she, dude, she did this for like years when I was, yeah. you know, yeah. 12, 13, 14, 15. And I remember going in there on my first day with her, she's like, we're going to sign you up for drum lessons. And I'm like, awesome. I'm so psyched. I cannot wait. And she went to the counter and there's this kind of long haired stoner looking grateful dead dude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> At the time who was manning the, you know, the, the phones in the front, the front counter and, oh, you know, my son wants to sign up for drum lessons. And this guy who turns out 25 le- years later to be you, mm-hmm. uh, says, all right, well, uh, okay. So it looks like, looks through the book. Okay. There's this is guy. That me? Is that is that my voice from 25 years ago? <laughs> I'm okay. trying to imagine it. Yeah, dude. Like, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> That's pretty. No, I, what I'm saying is that's you're 100, percent dude. That's great. <laughs> well, you you signed up, you know, put me in the little book to to take the lessons with that guy, and I really cannot overstate to you how foundational of a moment in my life that was. I mean, I'm, we're sitting here talking about it 25 yeah. years later. Yeah. And so this guy is teaching me these drum lessons, and um, I absolutely adore it. And um, at one point there was a summer where I. I don't want to get this wrong or get him in trouble 25 years after the fact. Um, but th- at some point, like maybe the studio space got, got clogged at the, at the drum shop and we were teaching at his house. He was teaching at his house. And I, I just remember driving to his house on, I think he lived on Broadway and like Clintonville or something. And it was like a little house. It was very tidy. It was very neat, but it was very small. It was very humble. And he had his, I remember walking in the front room and his drums were in the, the gig bags from the night before because he had a gig with hoodoo soul band or something. And he was, you know, probably it's probably 10 in the morning. He's probably a little bit hungover. He's getting a little slow getting going and he has a drum kit set up in the basement. And I just kind of thought like, this is the coolest guy that I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) Like I want my life to be exactly what this guy does, which is 
plays with a funk band on Sunday and then plays with a jazz group at the restaurant on Tuesday and teaches some lessons. And that to me was really like the apotheosis of like, this is what, you know, this is this apex idea of like, yeah, that's totally what I want to do. And I had so many good years of studying with him. I'm with you, man. I've told this story before, but just as as quickly as I can, I remember having a conversation with my sister shortly after I graduated from Capitol. I was working Mm -hmm. at Columbus Pro Percussion. I was playing in like four bands, including the band you mentioned, Stonebird. Stonebird, dude. Stonebird, yeah. That's so sick. And, you know, playing with Vaughn Weister's big band on Monday nights. I did that for two and a half years. His Brasilera was playing with that band and then a top 40 band and had a, I don't know if I had a few students or not at the time, Mm -hmm. but I was in the thick of it. And my sister said, I'm worried about you. Hmm. Uh, I mean, again, well, that's a separate story, but she was, I'm worried about you. Like, I'm, I'm afraid, like this music thing, like if you don't make it on, say you're not on MTV, that you're going to be disappointed and I, I stopped her and I said, I'm in the music business. Like, I don't yeah. I think you understand. Like, I work at, at a great music store. I'm in like four bands. I'm teaching. I'm, I'm in the music business. Like, again, yeah. and I think that might have resonated with me. That kind of reinforced. I had to question, you, you know, like when someone challenges you, it really is reflective upon what it is that you believe as opposed to just... You you're you're no longer dismissive about what your personal values are, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when someone challenges you on your beliefs, your values, you really have to. If you really believe them, you have to hold your ground. And I think at that point, I might have on my own defined my position and my my feet, my gut feeling about what it was I wanted to do. And so you remind me of that when you talk about going and seeing what what Jim Ed was doing. And and I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for people that carve out their niche and and a lifestyle that works for them. And if music is a part of it, a big part of it, that's great. And and there is no hierarchy of like, well, this guy's playing with so and so and this person's doing that. It's like if you're making a living or if you're doing what you want to do with music, that's that's amazing. Can I quick do a, a super quick detour that illustrates that point? Yes, um, please. Like I think it was a year ago, I was doing. No, Mark, this is my podcast. <laughs> oh, no, I, you know, <laughs> this is about me. No, I was kidding. <laughs> I don't want to be the hijack guy. It's, uh, <laughs> so anyway, about my drumming. So listen, um, I was doing about a year ago. I was doing Conan with my friend Aaron, and I saw Jimmy Vivino in the hallway, and I went up and said, "Hey, to him, we're not friends, but I." I obviously been a fan over the years. And I said, Hey, it's an honor to be here again. I big fan of the show. I performed on here. I don't know, six, seven times over the years. I, my first performed with you guys in 2006, back when, um, the show was in New York and it's, it's always been an honor and a pleasure to come in. Yeah. And he goes, and he goes wow, man. Like, so you, you were like playing drums. You, you played in 2006 and you've been, this is in 2019 or 2018. And he's like, so you've been playing drums this whole time. And I said, yeah, I mean, I guess so. And he was like, that's a small miracle. Wow. You know, his point being like, he was like, you know, that's like not many people do that, you know? And it was a really good confidence boost that I, you know, I suppose I needed it or whatever, you know, it's just one of those small things that was nothing to him. It was just being nice, but he's, he was right. And I was like, oh yeah, 
it's just not easy to do it for a really long time like that, for sure. Whether you're famous, like your sister maybe would be her frame of reference. You know, I get it. If you're not a professional musician, if, you, if you're a mailman, your idea of a famous drummer probably is Neil Peart or something yeah, like that. Right, but, right. but it's just like, that's not the statistical reality of most people who make a living with the instrument. It's so funny when people say, hey, when you get big and famous, don't forget me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what if I do get big and, what does that mean? Wait, wait, who recognize, who will you recognize walking down the street? I bet Phil Collins could walk down the street and most people wouldn't recognize him. I think that's probably true. I, Ringo, I, I, you would. Maybe yeah. Tommy Lee. Those are like the only two people that I know. Collins. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't think it's really, you're not going to be like, Bieber or something like that, you know? Yeah. Although I, he'd probably walk by me too. I wouldn't. Well, anyways, that's another. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about with Jim Ed and his, his teaching and just my short experience with him kind of inspired me to think of this question is that I know there are a couple things. Were there important lessons that you took away from your time with him that you still carry with you to this day? Yes, 100%. Um, One of them, a really basic one is just a listening thing, which is I remember (laughs) – you remember that there's like this Dave Weckl record in the 90s that's like just Dave Weckl just blasting the whole time and it's super rad. It's totally fun. But like it's called um, – I don't know, but it's badass. It's awesome. But um, I was like trying to learn this super tricky uh, pattern on that record that uh, is very Garibaldi inspired or whatever. And it's like I had it on and just like within seconds, I'm trying to play it. And he was like, no, just I feel like, can we maybe listen to it a little bit more? And I was like, yeah, yeah, but isn't it kind of like this? And he's like, yeah, can you? And he had to like physically, he was like, can I see your sticks? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay, can we please just listen to this thing? Like, don't do anything. All you have to do is sit there, which is obviously very hard for me because I'm super fidgety. And he's just like, you got to just listen to this thing. And I, I take that with me now because like in rehearsals, you know, people like if we're trying to learn a song or something, somebody will do the thing where they hold the Spotify up to the SM58 oh. microphone. And within seconds, like the whole room is like blasting away. And I'm like, yo, like, stop, stop. Like, can we just, can we please just listen to this? Like, Shut up. And can we please just listen? That was a super, super valuable skill set. Um, he was also very, very good at teaching me transcription. And I also want to tell you this story because it it really shaped my aesthetic in a way that I still carry around with me today. And unfortunately, it comes a little bit at the expense of Neil Peart, which is to say that one of the first couple of days, times that I studied with him, I wanted him to show me this pattern, some Rush song that I was obsessed with. And it's funny now, but at the time he was kind of like really dismissive of it. And he was sort of like, he was like, I was like, yeah, can you show me this pattern? It's really hard. And it's like really fast. And there's like all this crazy stuff going on. And he's like, yeah, uh, I mean, I can, I guess I can show you that, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, have you heard Asia by Steely Dan? And I was like, (laughs) no, no, I don't We'll talk about that later. Show me this rush thing. And then he's like, yeah, but, what about Groovelation by John Schofield? Have you heard that record? No, dude. No, no, no. We're t- I'm trying to do Rush. I'm trying to do Fast. Come on. Can you yeah, show me? Yeah. And he's like, well, okay. Well, what about uh, The Real McCoy by McCoy Tyner? Do you know who Elvin Jones is? And I'm like, no, no, no. I don't care about any of that. And he's just like, why don't we – I'll show you a little bit of this Rush stuff, but like 
I have some other stuff that I feel like you might need to hear. And I, and I came from such a small, sheltered, conservative town in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So none of that stuff had – I mean, Steely Dan maybe because it was on like the classic rock radio station, which where I come from qualifies as like modern rock because that's what people sort of still listen to or whatever. But like the stuff with Idris Muhammad playing with Schofield, yeah. um, he, he hipped me to this record by Jonathan Brook in the story called Plum that had a – 22-year-old Abe Laboreal on it, which is like sort of my generation's version of like Procaro. Um, and in both of the cases of Plum in Asia, there's this, obviously, as you know, super simple drumming that doesn't really blow a 14-year-old's hair back. But when you really try to get under the hood of it, it's it's just like endlessly profound. There's a 6-8 jam on that Jonathan Brook record called Inconsolable. And it is zoom. And it's that for like seven minutes. I don't know if they recorded it to a click or not. I can't really tell, but it does not move. And Abe, again, like I'm saying, is like probably 22 at the time. Yeah. And and it's just like that one was like, like my head exploded because it was like, I didn't even realize that there was that level of depth to what on the surface seems like a simple style of music. So he totally opened my mind up to that. Well, and, and I, I will back that up as well. Getting to know Jim Ed, I was obviously, as many people know, you know, as, as a kid obsessed with Rush and sure. and, and Zeppelin and, and lots of different other types of uh, prog rock like Yes and different mm-hmm. things like that. You know, discovered jazz in high school and became obsessed with that. But I was at a, I was at a point in my life where jazz and Latin and other styles were taking over the ether of what I was digging into. And Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Ed was not afraid to say, no, I don't, no, Rush sucks. You don't, that's, you know, you need to get into this. So, I mean, I I understand. The Jonathan Brook record, um, it it dominated the scene so much, I didn't want to like it because everybody talked about it and talked about her and everything. And I was like, I was like, oh God, give it a rest. There's more. (laughs) Sure. So, so that's that was my little thing, and then all my friends really got into it, and I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. But that record is a studio drumming tour de force because you've got Pelton on there, you've got Jay mm. Belarus is on there, and oh, Abe wow. is on there. Yeah. That's funny. That must have been, yeah, you might have been like just sick of it and over it, like right at the time that he showed that to me. But it's you know, it's just one of those things that like a teacher, whether it was by accident or not, it's like that guy. There was this thing that I needed, right? Which was this added dimension of listening and understanding of what existed in the world. And yeah. he's just like, boom, here you go, dude. Here's the next 20 years of your life. Is there something about Jim Ed's approach that you think, if there's any teachers listening to this podcast right now, you, I mean, you have, you have more experience than I do as a, as a student of him, but mm-hmm. just like something that teachers could take away, like do more of this. He was so yes. good at this. I can do it. I can do it in like, I can do it in two sentences. Yeah. Uh, one of the sort of fundamental tenets of his kind of whole deal, um, which I think other drum teachers would do well to take away, is the idea of um, – this was actually reinforced later because I ended up studying with Glenn Kochi who plays drums in Wilco. And what they shared in common was I don't want you to be a great drummer – I want you to be a great musician who happens to play the drums. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's a way different sort of 
axiom than just like, let's learn how to like blaze through the Ted Reed book or whatever. And obviously all that stuff is crucial or whatever. And I did it and I still do it. I'm gonna get off the phone with you and I'm going to go work on stuff or whatever. But like Jim Ed, another thing about this guy for your listeners to understand is I think this, I'm taking lessons with this guy. I think he's like the greatest drummer on the planet, him and this other guy from Columbus who I'm happy to gush on about called Tony McClung. Okay. This guy's like the greatest drummer on the planet. Oh wait, come to find out he also plays keys. Yes. Like with, with the same level of like proficiency. Yes which is a very, very high level, by the way. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy just, this guy, half of what this guy does is like more than I'll ever accomplish, like just trying to do this one thing. So all of that guy's drumming is grounded in fundamentally, it's coming from a place of like music before anything else, before, and it's, there's a Dan Kelly record from the early 2000s that he's on where, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, there's something that's really like, in a way I can, I can say this now cause I'm almost 40 and I've like been listening to the, I've studied for so long, but like there's something that's almost maybe a little bit unrefined in Jim Ed's playing. It's a little bit loose and kind of slippery almost or yeah, something. Yes. Very similar to like a, like a Billy Martin kind of a vibe and very not like a Mark Juliana. It's just not, it's not that it's imprecise, but it's just like a little bit, a little bit loosey. Your it's listeners musical, can't see man. this, but, Yeah, he just kind of moves around a little bit. He's playing like a musician. He's playing like a musician. Yeah, his facility is is great, and his his fingers and his hands were always amazing. Uh, But yeah, when I I I couldn't look away when he was playing, and 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 it was just it was. You know what? You reminded me of something. Two things, real quick. Uh, Dan Kelly was my roommate. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, we were we were, wow. we were close when he passed cool. through uh, Nashville. We amazing. Out. I love that guy. Yeah, big fan, big fan. Yeah, I uh, I went to Jim Ed's senior recital, and he played drums, marimba, piano, mm-hmm. just killed it, everything like that. I was maybe a sophomore. I was really serious, mm-hmm. uh, and I was thought I was moving ahead, and that was one of those moments that just. I was so impressed and excited. And here's a, a friend of mine who I adored, who did such a great job. But I, I left that recital feeling completely crushed. Like, I don't, hmm. have, I don't have it together. I just, I don't have it together. That's interesting. Uh, uh, but I, combat, I tried to combat that feeling because we have those moments where you just get stomped. You lose mm-hmm. an audition, you yeah. get fired, you whatever, and you know you have to learn to to manage those feelings. Yeah, and um, but I didn't want to detract from the joy that his friendship brought me, his playing, his talent, his sharing brought me. Yeah, I immediately went up to his parents and I said, "I, I just I just want to say, Jim Ed's been a, a good friend, and it's been such great to have him as a, a, a you know as a as a form as a classmate and, and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I, he's going to be amazing. And they just were this, these, this Texas couple that were like, well, thank you very much, son. We appreciate saying that we're real, uh, pr- we're real proud of him. All right. Well, well, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Yep. Sure. We don't take compliments very well. So just move along. That's uh, really nice. That's really nice. And obviously I'm sure Jim Ed wasn't, you know, I, I've been in that situation where you feel like you're, you're like, Oh God, like, what am I even doing? But like, he wasn't doing that at you. You no. know what I mean? It's not, like no. his audition wasn't a flex on you no. to be like, oh, I'm crushing. It's just like that guy was just exuding. He was just doing what he does, you know? 
And I was I would work at gosh we are spending a lot of time on this and but I think I know we can move off whenever you want. I don't No, wanna... no, this is I, this is wonderful. I I mean I I will do I certainly do some editing but at the same time I I really I'm just I'm I'm really enjoying this man. I'm really enjoying it. Good. It's, it's, uh, I really do uh, uh, adore Jim Ed and uh, the last thing I'll say about him is I'm in the world. I'm working at Columbus Pro. I'm trying to like scratch out my what what I'm supposed to be doing, and you know, maybe even at the point considering moving to Nashville at the time, and just mm-hmm. like feeling like, oh, I got to What do I got to do? And Tony's over here playing, and I got to yeah, do yeah. this, and like, oh, you know, I got to practice more. And Jim Ed comes in; he's got a smile on his face, and you know, and he'll say, uh, "Happy holidays," you know, and he'll just like just be really nice. And like, I'm like, How? I want it because I have people in my life that that I'm so I feel so grateful that i have certain people in my life friends and other people that i'm like thank you for being in my life because you were a great example for me for and sure. he was that he was that it's mm-hmm. like he just was at peace and i'm like okay there's so much more to it because i just feel like the the competition the feeling of competition was starting to get overwhelming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that makes any sense it does Your wife was going to school at in New York, and yeah, so you mm-hmm. followed along, and there was opportunities. Uh, and and uh, I want to I want to mention to the listeners because there's so much to talk about here, and we we've spent some time uh, covering some things that is uh, is a lot of fun because there's a unique history between us yeah. uh, that I, I that I think is interesting and fun to share. Uh, but uh, I had a you were on uh, Nick Ruffini's, uh podcast, Drummer's Resource, which we are, mm-hmm. uh, are, are huge fans of. And uh, so I encourage people. It's like 494. It's a, like the 490s is something like the episode. It was just before his 500th episode. I encourage listeners to go to that, to check that out. That's that's a lot of fun. And Nick did, did such a great job. And I think he was really enjoying that that back and forth. And you really fed a lot of the, the, the conversation. So uh, there's a lot of stories about you finding your space in New York and Mm -hmm. and meeting people in a really genuine way, uh, getting one of your uh, first gigs while you were, you were living in New York, you got called to do a gig in Cleveland. You're like, man, I don't know if I want to do this. I want to be in New York while you're doing the gig in Cleveland. You meet, was it Ben Queller? Yep. Who said, "Well, I I need a drummer in New York. I really need a drummer. I th- you sounded great, but I, I I'm in New York." And you're like, "No, wait, I'm in New York too." And yeah, then that th- turned into like six years of touring with Ben Queller. I went to Australia six times with that guy. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it was totally. I mean, it was, I don't want to over like I don't want to oversell the the luck part and risk coming off as like cloyingly self-deprecating, but, but I do think there is a little bit like that was pure luck that I happened to be like, yes, I spent a lot of time practicing, but like, I just happened to be in a room with a guy who needed this thing that I knew how to do. But he saw you play. 
He saw me play. Yeah. And, and so another thing, I think I pointed this out on that podcast, and this is very much to his credit, as well as the guy that I went on to work with after that, a guy called Butch Walker. What those guys share in common as it applies to me is, so you know how it's like that, I, you know, I don't know how it works in Nashville, but like if, if you're considered for some sort of gig of note, I would assume that you know, the folks doing the hiring would want to know that you've kind of already done other gigs of note to just as like kind of an indicator that like, okay, this guy's on the level or whatever. Like, oh, here's this clip of him doing X, Y, and Z playing with this other sort of well-known band. Oh, okay, cool. With Queller, I, I didn't have any of that, like zero. And he was on a major label and had been for several years. He had made MTV videos. He had been to Australia six times before that. Mm-hmm. He was in his world... A, like kind of a big deal, not like a rock star, but for sure, like a fill up the Newport music hall kind of a guy or what it plays to 1500 people a night or whatever. And when he met me, you know, it didn't, let me say that this doesn't sound very self-deprecating, but I hope that it, I, I hope that it illustrates the point. I like to say about both of both of those guys, they like, they made me a guy before I was a guy. Yeah. Does that make any sense? So like it didn't, he didn't care that I hadn't already been on Letterman or that I hadn't already played on a bunch of major whatever records. Mm -hmm. He was just like, this thing that I see in front of me seems like it'll work. And I'm not, I'm less concerned sort of with your CV or your pedigree or your uh, resume or whatever, but like, I'll go ahead and take a chance on you. And I think this will work out. And I'm so grateful to both of those guys for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I, a couple things to unpack from that. Whoops. Uh, a couple things to unpack is I, I, I don't know, and I could be way off base with this, but I've, I've been in Nashville for 20 years and, and mm-hmm. I, I don't, 99% of the gigs that I've gotten that I think a lot of other people have gotten is just by word of mouth. 100%. You know, I, I, I think I've done two auditions ever. And, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's, it's never been like, what have you done? It, it comes down to someone seeing you, you playing with them, you having a session with them, and then you meeting them for the first time, and then them, them either that day or a couple days later saying, or a year later saying, hey, um, I was just thinking about you, the other, you know, I need somebody, and I think you'd be a good fit, because people make that assessment really quick. And, for sure. And, and like I said, Ben saw you play, but I, there's more to it that people need to realize it's your presentation, your personality, your uh, you know, like we were talking about Matt earlier, just not being a freak and just like okay, I'm I'm getting the feeling that this would be someone I would like to spend time with on the road. Yeah, yeah. Open and that's a that's a call that he made. He made that call in the course of one night, you know. But I and think that of, I think it's safe to say that a lot of us could do that. You could meet somebody, gosh, it, it just in line at the grocery store and just be like, "I like you, man. You're you're yeah. you're a good dude." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and I think that's that's an important element. You know, I, I, again, I, I you might have even been the person, and I think about this a lot. Uh, maybe about three or four years ago, we were messaging back and forth, and you said, "If I hear one more story that you have to be a good hang on the road, oh, I'm going to yeah. shoot myself." <laughs> well, that's just that's. I mean, none of this none of this takes away from your point lands perfectly well, but I feel like when guys get all up about that, it's like that's a really low bar. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's like just any job. It is, like- is a low bar, but my God, it's like telling people to vote. It, it's a sure. low bar, yeah. but you have to keep telling people to yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, because just be cool. Still- have, you know, I, yeah. I, my, I mean, just where I come from, and you're this way too, like you come to find out when, I don't know if, how in Nashville, but like moving to the coast, dude, being from the Midwest is like a superpower. Like it really is. <laughs> just because of some dumb stuff that would have gotten you smacked when you were a kid if you didn't do them is sort of held in this like highest of virtue as like, Oh, this guy like, will look you in the eye and show up when he says he's going to show up and <laughs> not F you around and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Is F- that, is that really that astonishing? You know what I mean? Like that's Billy Ward okay. talked about that too. He's from Cincinnati. He's from Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. And he's like, yeah, I've been in New York for, you know, 35 years, but man, I don't know something about the Midwest. It's still, People still notice it about me. I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm that nice guy. <laughs> I think that's a real. I think that's a real thing, and I I just lean into it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm nice. You know, it's so funny the, the, the this girl that I work for. She's like she always introduces me as like. There's two things about this guy behind me, and they they rarely go together. He's a great drummer, but he's also one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And those two things are rarely the same. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And I stand up and I give everyone the finger. Uh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, right on brand. Perfect. Not 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 for very long. I I, I get shy, you know. Um, and I I I'm looking at my notes here. I know New York was one of the places you w- were considering going to 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 pursue music, but your wife going there kind of sealed the deal. Was it the same situation with Los Angeles, or what was yeah. the move? Okay. I was dragged here kicking and screaming. Um, really? But oh yeah, so. I was loving New York. I was, I was playing so much with Queller. I was really, really busy. Um, but my wife, so she was in Col- at Columbia getting a uh, MFA in uh, screenwriting. So we're basically in her TV writing. Uh, there's like a big whiteboard over there. That, um, so she writes for television shows. And she got an opportunity to write for a show in LA in about 2009 or 2010. And... Um, so what we agreed on was, I said, man, that's an obviously great opportunity, but television writing contracts are almost like band tours. They're, you know, it's a six, seven month contract. And then you have to, maybe the show gets picked up. Maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, you then maybe get on another show or you don't. And that all at the time felt very sort of uh, tenuous to me. So I was like, can you just go first and like, let's just like make sure that this is for real I will totally follow you there. But what I don't want to do is move everything out of our apartment, go to LA for six months and then turn back around. And she was like, cool. So she went and lived with her manager in studio city. And my friend, Aaron Tastian, who lives in Nashville now moved in with me in Brooklyn. And we, I hung on in New York for about another six to eight months. And then it just sort of became clear that like, okay, her work is just inarguably in LA. So you just, you got to go to LA. And I did. And I, fell in love with the place. And in retrospect, not to be like whatever the opposite of sour grapes is, but like all my New York friends, almost all of them have either moved to LA or moved to, to Nashville yeah. subsequent, you know, at the time, you know, my, at the time I was bummed, my friends were bummed. Cause they're like, Oh man, what are you going to do out there? Like, all right, I guess. Yeah. And, um, but now I just, whatever, for whatever, socioeconomic climates, it's housing, blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of people have wound up here and I, I love it. And I've been here since probably 2010, I guess. 
A, a couple of questions about Los Angeles. Kind of, how would you describe the personality of Los Angeles, say, relative to New York or what you know about Nashville? If we could use those as a barometer, uh, what's the personality of Los Angeles from a live playing standpoint and a recording standpoint? I don't know that it's all that different because all three of the places that you just mentioned are such destination places and they all tend to attract, attract, you know, Midwestern yokels like you and me. (laughs) So it's like every, you know, every person I run into a rehearsal in LA. So I have some friends that are straight up, you know, Angelino natives for sure. And that's a, that's a really unique uh, personality type, but like mostly it's just people from all over the world go to these places because it sort of feels like, it just, you know, you you did the same, you made the same calculation moving to Nashville, but it sort of feels like, okay, this is the, now I'm in the major leagues or whatever, whether or not I'm succeeding or, or thriving, at least I'm in the league. And to back way up to your point about like being in Columbus where you're like, all right, well, uh, you know, I'm playing in a cover band, I'm teaching a couple students, I'm playing with like the one songwriter guy in town who's making a go of it as a solo artist, I'm playing this jazz thing in a restaurant, I work at the drum store zero disrespect to that, but like, that's you, you're killing it if you're doing that. Yeah. Like you're basically you, you, you personally, Matt, it's like you won Columbus in a way, you know what I mean? Where you're just like, I could just maybe keep doing this and that's cool. And some guys like Tony McClung have kept doing it and they're unreal. That's the thing that got me is that I was knowing guys like Tony McClung and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, uh, all these incredible players. And I'm like, I'm doing the same gigs that they're doing. And, and in my mind at that time, I'm like, that's not how this works. You're supposed to get good and get better gigs as you got. And I'm like, I'm not even close to what to Tony is playing. And yet yeah. we're doing some of this. We were in some of the same bands. How is that possible? Yeah. And, and so I was, I was feeling very disillusioned. And then also guys that were working a lot and scraping pennies together to buy sticks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, sorry to sabotage your your streaming stream of thought. No, no, no. I, we were just talking about sort of personality types in LA, and I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at. I don't know how to ascribe a personality type to a city or a music scene, really. Although, uh, other than to say that any kind of super dated, obsolete, like Woody Allen notion of LA as being dumb was itself dumb. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like the Getty Center is in LA and Werner Herzog lives in LA and some of the best food on the planet is in LA. Yeah, and yeah. it's, it is a cultural center that, that is to be, you know, it's undeniable. There's an impression that there's this mass exodus over the last five or six years. Yeah. Uh, oh, out of LA? Yeah. I, I was mean, just reading about, go ahead. I feel like we're getting a lot of people, we're hearing that in Nashville. So maybe this this needs to get corrected. I'm not really sure, but you know, oh yeah, everyone's moving from LA. They're like, there's nothing going on over there. But I I mean, I take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, anything that people say, and there's trends, and everything kind of ebbs and flows, and where people go. But I mean, you know, I'm sure there. I know there's people from Nashville that have moved to LA, and and we have a a friend. What I know, Rich Redmond has spends time in Los Angeles, and Jerry Rowe moved out to Los Angeles for a short while before he moved back to Nashville. So it's really interesting. So I wanted to. I don't know what 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 do you say to that, (laughs) Mark Stepro? Yeah, yeah. At first, I thought you were talking about sort of uh, more 
politically that this sort of idea that, you know, people that California is hemorrhaging people and, and to mm, an extent mm. it, its population is, is going down a little bit. But I mean, um, I've noticed more people move to LA, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's probably easier in some ways to live in Nashville. I, what I envy you for in Nashville is, um, proximity to Ohio because, you know, my folks are older and it would be, it would be lovely to have a five hour drive of just like, all right, let's just get up there and go see him as opposed to like, all right, let me book a flight and then go to LAX. Yeah. Um, maybe people just, maybe some people like the, the smaller, the fact that Nashville feels like a smaller town mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, yeah. LA is definitely a, it's a big place, I suppose. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Nashville has grown, but I mean, it's all relative and it's, I mean, I still, I mean, I think that's one of the things that attracted to me aside from that I had friends that were living down here that were saying, mm-hmm. come on, come on down. Yeah. Uh, you'll love it down here. And uh, and then also at the time in 2000, uh, it was very close, relatively speaking, to what Columbus was, uh, you know, in the housing market and all the other yeah. things. So it, it has worked out in that way. And I don't know. I, I, I wanted the best of both worlds. And um I wanted to raise a family and uh, be a rock star all at the same time. Look at you. I know, look at me. Uh, I do have kids. And, and, uh, <laughs> the rock star thing <laughs> is still uh, up for debate. Well, think about that. You're, that means you're batting 500, which would put you in the Hall of Fame. Okay. <laughs> you accomplished one out of those two things. That's I'm going to go good... grab my kids. Will you tell them that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long were you in Los Angeles before – you met Butch Walker, and I, you again. You talk about this uh, with Nick, but I, I would love to hear the story uh, and and how amazingly simple it is that you came across Butch. Yeah, uh, oh, similar and, to Quell. I'm sorry, and and also kind of a little back. I mentioned to a friend of, a friend of mine I worked with last night that I was mm-hmm. going to be speaking with you and 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 some of the things. And I said, and he's been working with Butch Walker, and he's like, I love Butch Walker. Like, mm-hmm. so some people are there; they really know his stuff, and some people don't because yep. at times he does his own thing, but he also is behind the scenes. For for music insiders, they might know, but for other people, they may not. Yeah, Butch Walker has what I like to call dual citizenship insofar as he's like a very, very successful record producer um, to very famous and not famous bands. But I mean, you know, like Taylor Swift, our our boy, Matt Billingsley's boss, like he's produced her records and blah, 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 massive Weezer, Panic at the Disco, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he does that and he's so successful at that because he is first and foremost a performing songwriter artist in his own right. And he basically got famous as a producer because his band that he was, you know, what I would refer to as the guy, meaning he wrote all the songs. It was his baby. He was pulling the, you know, leading the ship. Um, That band had a hit and the labels came to him subsequent to that. And they said, man, who like this, the smash hit song, like who, who wrote that? And he was like, Oh, I did. And they're like, wow. Well, like who engineered it? And he was like, uh, I did. And they're like, okay, wow, well, who, who produced it? And he was like, uh, I did. So then all these labels were like, well, I've got this band. I've got this band. I've got this girl, Avril Lavigne. I've got this guy, Gavin DeGraw. Like, would you, could you basically just do what you do with that band, just with these other bands? And he was like, sure, I guess. And so over the course of 20 years, like he's become very, very successful at that while also having this kind of like cult following. It's like a super, 
like it's a sold out cannery kind of a vibe. Okay. Uh, definitely not a sold out Ryman, but definitely a sold out cannery kind yeah. of a deal. Yeah. Um, couple nights sold out at the, uh, how about the Newport? For our Columbus sure. listeners. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, to put it in, in Columbus terms, he would play at the Newport. See, he Atlanta, wouldn't play. See, Athens, oh, you have the Athens Theater. I'm sorry. 40 watts. Let's do, okay, how many other, sorry, go ahead, <laughs> the Fox Theater. Sure, <laughs> yep, we, we've, done them, we've done them all. Um, but, so I had been in L.A. about, maybe about a year, not even quite a year. I had somebody put me in touch with him who was a, a fan of one of my other bands that I played in, uh, with Aaron Teshin, actually. And she just, you know, it's like very much like one of these after the gig things where somebody's like, Hey, can I give your Butch Walker's looking for a drummer? Can I give him your number? And you just go like, yeah, sure. I don't really know who that is. I highly doubt that you know how to get a hold of that guy. And I'm also kind of busy, but what do I have to lose? Sure. Absolutely. And then I was like walking the dog and he literally called me up and he's like, Hey man, it's Butch. I got your number. Um, Dude, I'm kind of looking for, same as Queller, dude. Same, very eerily similar to Queller. I'm looking for a guy and like, your name keeps popping up. Like, do you want to come over um, and talk about it? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I get my car, drive over there. He lives in Santa Monica, which is on the other side of town. Um, And I'm driving over there and it occurs to me like, I don't know any of this dude's music. Like, I don't know anything. What am I doing? But it's just one of those like, just, yeah, go say, take the meeting, I suppose. There's your LA thing. Take the meeting. Um, <laughs> my wife's like Hollywood show, TV writing, whatever. Um, but I go over there and I'm like, oh God, what if, is he, am I like supposed to audition or something? Cause like, uh, that's going to be bad. Cause I don't know any of this guy's music at all. And um, I just went over and we just hung out and talked about the Eagles. I mean, really. And um, I don't think I did any playing that first day. No, no. What I did was, I yeah, he just gave me a burnt copy of their upcoming record that uh, Patrick Keeler played drums on. It, it was really good. Um, and he was like, yeah, man, I mean, you know, we hung out for an hour or so. And I think to your point earlier, I think he just maybe wanted to make sure that I wasn't a total serial killer or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, we start rehearsing next week. And then we did. And I sort of joined that band. And then that led to Hey man, so we're um, recording these songs for Keith Urban. You want to come in and play on these two while you're at it? Uh, yeah, sure. Hey, we're doing this record for Gavin DeGraw. You want to come do that? Blah blah blah. And it just sort of slowly. Oh, it's amazing. I, yeah, it just worked that way. It was awesome. Yeah, there's an engineer from Columbus. Actually, uh, I don't know if you know Eric Fritch. He spent. Yeah, sure. I know Eric. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He for many years he kind of was my Butch Walker here uh, in his studio. Sure. Uh, you know, I was his guy. Uh, and, um, it, it, it just, it just opened the door to meet so many different singer songwriters and work with different people that some of them turned into multiple records and different things like that. And I remember not being super busy and wanting to do more studio work. And I was over at his place and we went out for lunch and I expressed this to him and he goes, okay, you need like two or three more Eric Fritches in your life. I've said that before. I've actually said that about, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's basically the difference between me and Josh Fries is that Josh Fries has like 10 Butch Walkers. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like mm-hmm. he has Eric Valentine and Mike Elizondo and everybody else. Like it's totally true. Like I think to like really be crushing it, you have that relationship, but you, like you said, with like 10 other people, which yeah. that's a, that's a high bar to, yeah. to cross for sure. But man, I wouldn't try like, I do plenty with Butch. Like it keeps me busy and he's got me on, he's just, 
I don't know. He's, he's done so much for me. Like it's, it's very, very difficult for me to overstate how much I feel like I actually owe that guy in the whole scheme of things. And, and I've said this many times to, to, to different guests I've had on, but there, there's, you still have to deliver. You still have yep. to be consistent, you know, and, yep. um, you know, just, just hit it out of the park playing wise and, you know, obviously personality wise and, and workflow and all those things. There's, there's more to it than just, well, you, you've got this gig cause you know, this guy, no, no, it's, there's, there's more to it, you know? And, yeah. I didn't know that guy when I got that gig, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Exactly. So Butch plays everything. Gosh, on credits, he's drums and all the above. It's crazy. It's, yeah, it's it's borderline it's borderline almost dishonest but like he kind of doesn't need me. Like in a way, I mean, you know what I mean? Like he is more than capable of sitting down at the drums and executing what he wants to do. It's going to have a lot of edits in the pro tools session, but um I think I think I just probably help him get done what he wants to get done a little bit quicker, but he can you can be I can't remember if I said this to Nick or not, but you can be a just fresh faced signed 22 year old artist. So this idea of being a producer could sort of mean anything. It's very ambiguous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, he can do it all. He can help you write the song. He can mic up the drum set, play the drums, record them, pick up the guitar, record the guitar, pick up the bass, do the percussion overdubs, comp your vocal together, tune your vocal together, mix the whole thing, master it and hand you a finished product and be like, there you go. All of those rock and roll boys who follow you around As you break hearts from the east to the west side of town So I come from kind of this generation where you go in and you play drums and you get the drums mic'd up really well. And gosh, when I first started recording, you know, the drum pass had to be perfect from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Then it was easier to, to do punch-ins. Now you can do multiple takes and pick from them all. Mm-hmm. But as I'm discovering, and, and maybe other people are discovering too, there's other elements. There's more than you just can't put a loop down and then just kind of put it in and out of the song. You know, that was kind of a thing in the early 2000s. Yep. Now there's like sample replacement. There's the mix of electronic drums with acoustic drums. There's like all, it's, there's everything now mm-hmm. put together. So as someone that has experienced doing that and working on these records that I've, and these artists that I just mentioned, there are elements of real drums and electric drum, you know, loops and electronics and all these other things. Where, what is your job in the studio? Are you part of helping to write these parts and help program in parts and then performing in other parts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. I think you're totally right that like there's, there's a way to get away with having drums on your record in 2021 without barely sitting down and, you know, we always joke like that our joke in the room is like, he puts on the headphones and sits at the desk and I go kick, 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 snare, 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 hi, 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 hi. And he goes, 
great, cool. We got the, we have the data. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. You can go now, you know? Yeah, right. But it's like, that's, but that's not a very, I mean, this is a little bit, uh, this is high up on the hierarchy, but like, it's not a very fun way to make a record. And he would be the first person to tell you that. So it's just more fun if there's people doing it together. And, and, you know, man, like I'm all for recording from home and getting that, getting that skill set together and stuff. But that's not like how that didn't, I didn't get excited about music when I was 14 thinking like, Oh, someday I'm going to email logic files to other people. You know, like that's, <laughs> I wanted to be playing music with people and Butch is that way. And we both come from like, the culture of like live music and we both love the heartbreakers and both heartbreakers by the way and you know we want to have there be like a fun human drummer element uh participating in the song so like a lot of times we'll just sometimes we'll just replace um a demo that'll have like a programmed parts on it um and it's, that's a quick one because, you know, it's funny. It's like the, I feel like there's such a, um, such a theme. These Nashville guys like to bang on about how fast, you know, oh, it moves real fast. You got to get in there and yeah. make your chart real quick. That's actually true in, in his world too, because it's like, he'll, I kind of have to be super, like he would never be a jerk about this. If I asked to listen again, I, he would absolutely do it. But like, I've just gotten really good at anticipating like, okay, he's hitting the space bar and he's going to like make a coffee right now. And like, now's my chance to like sort of furiously like chart this thing out. And like, I have about two minutes to do it because he is a lovely, sweet guy and we've never had a bad word between us. But like, I know he, he is a little bit impatient and he definitely doesn't want to sit there for a half hour while I listen to the song five times, you know? Yeah. So I'm very, very quickly like writing this thing down while he's like refilling his water bottle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we're kind of, we're going, um, so that's one way to do it. Um, but he's also, you know, he's an, uh, he's an old school guy as well. So like when we were doing the Wallflowers record, like that was like, we're like, Jacob, the singer is in the booth, Val McCallum, the guitar player is set up. Why not? Like that was people in a room, like working on what if we did the chorus twice here? And what, what is this kick pattern conflicting with the bass? No. Oh, well maybe it should conflict with the bass or blah, blah, blah. Right. Just stuff like that. You know, old school garage band style almost sort mm-hmm. of pre-production on the fly which it's a little different from nashville in that way because obviously the way that i think maybe like nashville like major label dates are set up like there's probably not uh as much time for that sort of the way the, of, that that culture works um but in that context with with butch we're just like making music together and then we just do it two three four times and then we're we're done and we're moving on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i think for uh master sessions i think there is a little bit more time and attention they're not trying to bang out right you know five songs in a three-hour period like a demo totally. or you know a low budget thing gotcha um, gotcha just just based on what i've what i've heard as far as the, the master session kind of thing but um, gotcha. <laughs> excuse me no i just i hear you know, you, you hear something like a Wallflowers record and you hear real drums throughout, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, those are full, those are full takes. Like that's like all the way through. Um, I, I mean, sure, there's, I'm sure there's like comping to some extent, but it's not, I think a really good maybe example of what you might be talking about yeah. was that, that Daft Punk record from 2013, where it was just like Omar Hakim like went in and played a beat. Yeah. And then they kind of moved it around and chopped it up and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really do that. 
Okay. Almost, almost never. I don't think I've ever really done that. Yeah. Yeah. And what elements as a drummer are you bringing to the table that Butch is like, okay, that's why he's here. Okay. So a couple of things, um, Butch can generally speaking at this point in the game, I can kind of do whatever I want. Um, and it's enabled me to be a little bit more obnoxious in a good way. Um, Butch can get a little sticky about kick patterns. He gets it in his head that he wants this kick pattern to be X way. And that takes a little bit of bandwidth on my part because mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of constantly having to monitor like, oh, right, it's this, not this other thing. Um, but generally speaking, he just – he wants it – I mean that sounds so dumb. He just sort of wants it to rock and he wants it to feel good and he wants – this sort of flies in the face with what the way people might understand pop music as it's produced in Los Angeles in 2021, but he wants personality in there. Hmm. Like he wants me to do that Vinnie Caliuta bludge to fill like literally like, cause we joke about that stuff. Like we love that stuff. Um, dude, we made a record for Rob Thomas. So like humor is part of it too. We made a record for Rob Thomas, uh, from matchbox 20 and literally in every song I figured out a way to go dot, 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 which is that? Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. That, that you know, Santana song. Oh we just God. thought it would be. We just thought it would be funny if we just like. Oh, what if we just? And sometimes it's really slow and like really hard to hear or whatever. Yeah, totally. But oh my gosh, I like, gotta listen to that. That's amazing. Let's just put that in, just cause, because it would be funny. So there's a lot of humor going on too. Um, but this is kind of a, a. This is something that I learned from sort of Brooklyn indie rock bands in the mid two thousands, like just approaching drums sort of compositionally. Um, and I think he wants there to be, obviously I can't get super wild or cerebral about it. Um, but you know, there still needs to be Stan Lynch in there sort of fundamentally. Right. But if I can just do one or two little wacky left turn moves that just for a second, you're like, you know what I mean? Like just, just weird enough where you're like, that's a guy, somebody did that. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm trying to, ultimately get away with there's so many great videos of you that that i see your where i have an opportunity to see your setup and sometimes Mm -hmm. it could be down to one symbol kick snare floor tom Mm -hmm. and a lot of your setup is nothing more than a four piece and maybe two crashes or two symbols up top Mm -hmm. so i i get the impression that it's still kick snare hat in the pocket oh yeah yeah, for sure. We're, I mean, we're totally going like Butch, like Percaro, like the, the latest uh, Butch record that we made was very much like we were talking about mid eighties Toto and stuff yeah, like that. Like yeah. that, that was a big, big, big kind of influence for us. Um, it's, it's totally pocket based. I suppose there's not a ton of like, there's not a ton of like Wayne Prantz Carlock vocabulary going on. Although I love that stuff, but that's yeah, right, right. This is this is like meat and potatoes, but do something cool if you can and make me laugh. With working with Butch, I'm sure it changes depending on the artist that he's working with. But do you feel like you have to adapt if you're in a different situation? What are uh, are you working? I thought I saw something. Um, you're working. Gosh, my notes. See, I have too. See, you had too much stuff going on here, Mark. <laughs> messing me up. Uh, did you do a, a session recently with uh, Shooter Jennings producing? Yeah. Wonder what what you know if you feel like you have to adapt to like. Okay, this isn't Butch. This isn't his show. So, or yeah. do you, or, or do you just like okay? Well, I'm. They hired me. I'm going to do me. Sort of, but I think it's important to hold two ideas in your head at the same time, and, and like 
yes, I'm going to do me, but also yeah. this guy is different from Butch, is different from Jim Scott, is different from Mike Viola. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like these guys all have their own unique personalities. They have their own unique hierarchies of what is important to them in terms of what they want to hear on the drums. Um, interestingly, as you were asking that question, it occurs to me too that those people are in service of the artist as much as I'm in service to them. So it's like, so it's like I'm over here trying to make sure Butch is happy. Like Butch is trying to make sure that Jewel is happy. I'm kind of trying to make sure that both of them are happy, but like he's, he's trying to do a bigger picture version of, of what I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I can be sort of granularly focused on the drums. He's trying to do that at a, you know, from a production standpoint, but he's trying to do the same thing that I am. Um, which is, you know, make sure the artist is like, that was, I'm really glad I did that. That sounds great. Um, but all of these producers have different bedside manners, different demeanors. Um, they all care about different things. So there's a guy called Jim Scott who has recorded, he recorded wildflowers by Tom Petty. Oh yeah. Um, massive list, massive, massive, massive list. Uh, he did, look him up a bunch of Wilco records, Dixie chicks, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I literally, I did a record with him. I literally was playing Ringo's drums, like no, no joke. Like Ringo's drums were set up in the room and I was playing them. Ferroni's too. But we were going to do a take and I think I genuinely wanted to know, but I also, this is a, just being honest about myself, I was probably maybe trying to signal deference to him and signal that I was being flexible and that I was being accommodating. And I said, before we started, I was like, so, Hey Jim, like, what are you like feeling for the kick drum pattern on this one? Or what do you, what are you kind of feeling here yeah. in this section? And he was just, he wasn't mean about it at all, but he was just sort of like, Oh, Oh dude, I I, don't, I thought that was your job. Exactly. Like, I, yeah. I saw where you were going I, with that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope, aren't you the one that, dude, I've got like 50 things to worry about. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like your kick, yeah. dude, and that's a, that's another good, that's a very valuable skill to have was like, just read the room and just kind of, this is a, this is a good lesson that I've learned from my wife. Who's like a screenwriter and, and these TV writers, uh, just have an idea dialed up at all times. Yeah. You don't have to say it. Maybe even wait until somebody asks you for your opinion. But when somebody asks for your opinion, have an idea, you know, yeah, and yeah. it might, it might get shot down and they might go, no, no, no. But might, that might inspire somebody else to say something else. And now the ball's rolling and the conversation's moving and we're kicking stuff around. But if you're just like, Oh, oh man, I don't know. Like that's, that's no good. Um, but in, in Jim's case, that anecdote was just meant to reflect that like he sees that as my job to like handle that part. Right. Um, there was, there was a time dude when, maybe it was on one of those Keith Urban songs. In fact, in fact, speaking of like Butch having to serve the artist and do all this kind of stuff the same way I do, there was some fill that I was like super hung up on. And I don't think I'd been working with him that long. And I was really focused on nailing this fill and I wanted to do it again. And I was like, Hey man, can I do that fill again? And the going into the bridge. And he's like, yeah, okay. I do it. Not quite what I want it to be. I'm like, Hey, can I do that one more time? And he's like, Oh man, I think, I, I think, I would probably good dude, which is butch code for like, no, like you're done. He's trying to be nice, but it's not, not getting through this, you know? Yeah. So I just kind of keep on and I'm just like, dude, I just, I really think I can crush this fill going to the bridge. And he had to stop. And he wasn't, again, this is like the story with Bob. He wasn't being a jerk, but he was like, dude, I don't have time for your fill. Like literally at the time, Keith Urban was like doing a game show, TV show or whatever, like whatever that 
singing show and he was like going to come to the studio and sing a vocal and I'm gonna like, leave it he at had, that. Like, that singing. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he, yeah. he had like 20 minutes to get there and sing this vocal and there's armies of like handlers and like Butch is stressed out. And here's this idiot on drums being like, well, but anyway, about my fill, you know, <laughs> and, and, and Butch had to be like, dude, I am so like, I cannot deal with your fill right now. I told you three times that this sounds good. Like, can you please take yes for an answer so we can move on to the other 50 things that I have to worry about? And I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> lesson, yes, well done, but lesson, lesson learned. You know, that was a big sort of humbling moment. When I first started working with Eric, he'd say, yeah, man, you know, and if I was a drummer, I'd like that, but... Nice. <laughs> it's funny, though, because sometimes we do stuff like that in that band. Sometimes we deliberately, like with the blush to stuff, sometimes he'll be like, he'll be like, give me a real, exp- give me your most expensive fill. Going expensive. Into that that's a, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, just do some crazy fill. Um, another one that I've, another thing that I've learned from him that I feel like I should mention, too, is like, we, it's funny, we've talked about the self-deprecating thing which is totally like a fundamental tenet of somebody's sort of Midwestern personality. But if I'm being honest, sometimes it can also be a little bit of an ego move in kind of a psyops kind of a way, because when you're self-deprecating, I was thinking about this on my run this morning, when you're self-deprecating, you're also kind of, whether you're doing it consciously or not, you're kind of signaling to the person that the you're kind of deliberately lowering the bar a little bit so mm-hmm. that you can clear it a little bit easier. Yes, oh, yes. just a little, I don't even know what I'm doing. I just, I'd be lucky to just sit down and get through the song. You know, you say something like that and then you get, then you nail it. And then they're like, Whoa, you know what I mean? So I've had that happen early again, early on where I would be beating myself up and be like, literally Josh Freese. I was like, I don't even know why you hire me, man. You should just call Josh Freese to come in here. And Butch was like, I saw him perk up and he's like, should I? Oh, wow. And I was like, well, uh, and he was like, I can, I mean, that's his stick bag, right? Like, are you, are you, can you not do this? Like I was under the impression you could do this. Like I thought you could do this. Like I hired you because I think what you do is as good as what he does. So do you not feel that way? Cause that's a problem. Yeah. Wow. And that was a really valuable lesson. How, where was that in your relationship with him? Time pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty early on because now I don't <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But also I've just gotten I've grown into the gig sort of confidence wise. But it's true though that is a super valuable lesson. Like you definitely you don't want to be insincere or 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 lie or misrepresent yourself. But you also don't want to like don't like broadcast your own insecurity to the room. That doesn't do anybody mm-hmm, any good mm-hmm. because I'm sitting there going I'm no good. Josh Freeze, Josh Freeze, and it's like now Butch has to deal with that. Yeah. And you know what I mean? He's got to like clean up my anxiety and like, that's not his job. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, tell me about, tell me about the wallflowers, man. Because I, when, I think when you came to sign up for drum lessons, when you were what, 12, yep. I was probably jamming along to bringing down the horse. Me too. On a regular basis. Same. Okay. Same. So I've known Jacob for six or seven. That's one of those, like you were talking about your buddy, Eric, or our buddy, I guess. Gosh, I haven't spoken to him forever. Um, but, uh, you know, he sort of exposed you to a bunch of different people. Jacob just is in Butch's orbit. They're neighbors. And um, I have performed with Jacob a bunch of times in the past, but just in like very um, unofficial capacities. So Butch and Jacob both have charities that they do. And every year they do charity gigs. So we'll get together and 
Jacob will do a set of Wallflowers material. So I've played all those Bring Down the Horse songs oh, with him that's amazing. a bunch of times, a bunch of times, um, just because. So then Butch finally, they agreed to uh, that Butch was going to produce the next Wallflowers record. And um, Jacob probably understandably is is a pretty guarded dude a little bit, you know. Um, but, but because of Butch, I didn't, I was already in the club. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there was a gatekeeper that was, it was already like, oh, he's okay. He, he'll be fine or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that comes, it's directly tied back to Butch. Yeah. And I know there's a single that's out, but uh, is the record out? Yeah. I don't think so. I think it's coming out this spring. Okay. I mean, maybe by, maybe by June or something, yeah. but yeah, it's a full, it's a full length record. It's great. Yeah. And, uh, uh one of the people we talk about a lot that comes up in conversation is Matt Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what's the, what was the second record that Wolf, it's, it's escaping me, but I listen to that a, a lot as well. Um, gosh, they're like in front of a, like a mini mall or a restaurant. I don't know. Okay. Uh, the, Matt's um, on that as well. Okay. So okay. coming in. So uh, when you're, basically covering someone else's parts and you're you I mean are you interpreting the songs and kind of putting your own how are you approaching the material that's been laid down on that record oh well because okay so for because of the fact that these were pretty unofficial informal gigs and because Jacob Jacob takes self-deprecating to an entire dark <laughs> level that you and I combined cannot achieve. Really? <laughs> I, I, oh God. I believe his direct quote to me was like, I don't know, just, you know, pretend like you're in like a crappy wallflowers cover band or something. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, can do like, <laughs> like no problem. What's funny is for that one jam that you're talking about, uh, for the, we were talking about one headlight, um, or maybe I was talking about one headlight. Um, I have that written down. You, you, yeah, yeah. you've interpreted, you've, uh, perceived that. Yeah. Anticipate, to, anticipated that. I did text Chamberlain on, I don't know him at all. I met him in an airport in Australia one time. Um, but he, I texted him cause I didn't, I couldn't tell on one headlight if it was four on the floor yeah. or a kick on one and three. Yeah. And I was like, dude, what do you remember? What, like, what's going on with that? And he was, he didn't remember. He's like, I don't know. But what it is, is just total nerd you know, inside Please. baseball, it's a floor tom with a towel on it with mallets going do 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 and that's that combined with do 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 is what gives that four on the floor feel. Combined with the bass is doing that kind of Larry Graham, like Jeff Kayampa used to do that kind of short, long. So it all sort of like sounds like four on the floor, but it's actually not. So that was that was the only thing that I actually tried to learn. Obviously, for us um, <laughs> among drummers, it's so famous because there's no crash cymbal on there, yeah, you know. Yeah, dude, I played that song, which he could have been totally pulling my leg, but like Jacob, when I played that with him, he, uh, he was like, "Dude, you didn't hit the crash cymbal," and I was like, "Yeah, that's like the most famous part of that song," and he was like, "Really?" And really? I was like, "Yeah, yeah." I don't think he even knew. <laughs> I was like, go listen to your famous record. Like it, there's no crash symbol on that track. And he was like, all right, far out. There's, there's these guys that I've been working with for the last three years or so. And, and, uh, they throw that song in the middle of one of their songs. And I even, 
I, I love the way it came out. And I, it, when I hit a crash symbol, I'm like, damn it. Like, actually, yeah. I, I, it's, like, crash it's such a nervous tick. It's like, don't, don't bite your fingernails. Don't bite. Ah, oh, crap. You know what and, I mean? And, and I could never like, in my, is my left hand going, is it ghosting? Am I going with the hi hat? Where is that? And depending on the bass player, it all changes. And I know it's got the, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's, I mean, we don't have to dwell on this, but like that's also gets into the weeds of like, you don't have to do like exactly what Matt Chamberlain did on that record. Well, first of all, he, we would, to, to make it be like the record, there would have to be somebody playing a floor tom with a towel on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so it's not, you're at a bar on Broadway and it's Saturday night and people are dancing and drinking and yeah, right, right. we're not at a Wallflowers concert. No. And also that record is 25 years old. And also the main singer doesn't even remember that there aren't crash symbols on it. So it's like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be precious about it, but like the, the environment that you're performing it in is drastically different from the environment that they recorded it. In. But, but my, but, but to your point, yeah, there isn't a lot of pressure for me to do it if I'm playing Saturday night on Broadway, but it <laughs> lower broad in Nashville. But if you're playing with Jacob Dylan, what are you doing? You know, yeah, the, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what the, the pressure is there is, and it's less on the granular elements of like where you're articulating the ghost notes or whatever, but it's like Jacob Dylan has played with, um, you know, with Chamberlain. Fred Eltringham was in his band for yep. years. Fred, Fred and I have this running joke because I do every gig Fred does just five years later. Fred, <laughs> Fred played with Ben Queller. Fred, oh, really? Fred, check this out. Fred quit Ben Queller and that chair became available because Fred joined the Wallflowers. Oh gosh. So, and then Fred played on that Keith Urban record that Jay Joyce did or something like that. And then I wound up on that. So we were texting the other, we were texting the other day and he was like, he was like, yeah, you've got a good, uh, uh, you've got a good KD Lang uh, gig coming up there in a couple go. years. That's She's right. real nice. Uh, she, you'll fit right in. You know, we yeah. were joking about that. But like, my point is that Jacob has been around, I mean, not even counting his dad, but like just his band. I mean, he's had the best drummers. Oh, I know in that band, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So like whether he knows it or not, or whether he's able to articulate it or not, or whether he thinks that he cares that much, like there's a built-in uh, threshold or something. I'm not sure what the right word would be an expectation, I suppose that it needs to feel, you know, X good in order for him to not be like, Whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. So that's, that's hard, you know, cause those guys are all great. And it goes back to what you were saying before. It's like, it's taken care of. I can just do my thing. And he's very much like that, like in the Tom Petty doc. I mean, they toured with Petty for years and years. I mean, Jacob is definitely a, a no-nonsense kind of songwriter. Like, he doesn't want to hear super wacky stuff. Um, he just wants it to more or less be taken care of. And I, I can I can get behind that for sure. Yeah. Well, man, I am a huge Wallflowers fan. Uh, I'm excited to hear the record. I'm excited to hear you on this. Um, again, I we talked about you being on the show what, like three or four years ago, and uh, I, I don't know how it didn't happen. But uh, when I saw that you were on this, I was like, okay, stop it, Mark. You're you're going to be on. We've got to talk about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you had me on. I, I mean, we have some more. I think we're doing we're doing Good Morning America and. Court, James Corden next week. And then we just did a CBS this weekend or whatever. So there's, I mean, they're, they're putting some, some promotion into it for sure. Speaking of taking care of business, like, and, and, and coming in and saving the day or that people not worrying about, I, I want to, if you could share the story, one of the stories about playing on Conan with old 97s. 
Oh yeah. Thanks for bringing that. that up. Yeah. That's a, that's a fun moment. Okay. So are you familiar with that band at all? I'm Do you not. know those? No. Okay. So they're like a, one of the original kind of alt country bands. They're from Dallas started in the nineties, right around the time that the wallflowers were. Uh, and the singer, uh, is Rhett Miller who's friends with Queller. So again, so check it out. Similar, similar thing to Jacob's thing. I've known Rhett for 10 years. Okay. Known maybe more. Um, he's seen me play a million times. Um, I'm sitting right here having a coffee and he calls me up and I was like, yo, dude, what's going on? And he was like, Hey man, are you in LA? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And he was like, cool. We're, we're doing Conan tonight. And I kind of thought, oh, okay, well, that's maybe that's an indirect way of he's going to say, let's get together after Conan and we'll have a beer and watch the gig or whatever. And I was like, cool, that's great. And he was like, dude, check it out. Our drummer, Philip, uh, who is, I believe, epileptic. This is all totally, uh, it's, I'm not saying anything controversial. Everybody knows all this. Uh, but he, he fell down in the hotel parking lot the night before and got like a concussion. Oh um, he had sort of like an epileptic situation and hit his head. The tour manager had to take him to the hospital. The tour manager gets a call from the hotel manager being like, Hey, I got one of your guys down here, like, you know, bleeding and unconscious. <laughs> so the drummer's in the hospital and, and Rhett's like, dude, we're doing Conan in like two hours. Like we're, I'm like going to, can you come down here? And I was like, yeah. What, like, what song is it? And he was like, I'll text it to you. And I was like, okay, cool. So I live in, at the time I lived in Atwater village near Silver Lake, uh, 15 minutes away from Burbank. So I got on the five, drove up there, listened to the song three or four times, um, in my car. And I literally just walked onto the set Oh my god! and we started rehearsing the song Yeah, and we, we did it. And Dude, another great side note to this story. This this sounds like a total cartoon, like I'm making this up. And I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but I'm just going to say it anyway. The guitar player in that band, who's a perfectly nice guy, I have nothing against him, but we're doing the rehearsal, okay? And hopefully there's been enough time that this is now funny. We'll, we'll find out, I guess. Um, he, keeps, he keeps turning around and like looking at me and like vibing me. And I'm just like, at first I was really self-conscious cause I'm like, Oh man, am I blowing it? I'm totally blowing it. But then I hit this point where I was like, dude, I'm not blowing it. I'm saving the day, dude. Like yeah. you're lucky that I'm here like on short notice to like pull this together. And I'm thinking, I've got this whole narrative in my mind. I'm like, Oh, maybe I'm not doing something exactly that he's like used to hearing and he's been out of shape about it, but you know, dude, you're just going to have to get over that, whatever. <laughs> and we were rehearsing after we finished the rehearsal and then he's like, the guitar player goes, all right. Anyone who's not in the band needs to leave the green room now. And I thought that was like kind of directed at me. So I like stand up and start leaving and he goes, no, no, this concerns you too. And I'm like, wow. Okay. I'm like, go on. You know, <laughs> he goes this morning, I accidentally ate these coffee beans, these espresso <laughs> beans and dude, they weren't espresso. Well, they were espresso beans, but they were California espresso beans. Oh my you know gosh. I, mean? I have no idea what's going on right now. So this guy is just <laughs> out. He is out. And Rhett, Rhett Miller, the singer, just looks at me and he's like, welcome to the band. You know? Oh like, my God. So that poor guy, you want to talk about taking stuff off of somebody's plate. That guy has a fill-in drummer who just rolled up, who's just woke up a guitar player who's just baked on by complete accident. Who's just like needs to like take a nap in the corner of the dream green room. And he's got to do Conan in like three hours. And so I was like, that was like, all right, let's like really suck it up and like 
you know, give this guy a really solid base for him to, to do his thing on. It was super memorable. It was really fun. I felt like a real superhero on that one. That man, it, it was it one of the video. I mean, was it this the only time you played with that band on Conan? So the video that I saw was that yeah. performance. Yeah, it was great, sure. man. It was well, great. Thank, thank God. It was like a pretty easy song. It was kind of in my wheelhouse. It's not like, Freaking Robert Fripp or somebody like, hey, can you come play this thing in twenty one eight on our? You know? Yeah, but I mean, there was like, there was some syncopation <laughs> yeah. that would that, that, like a reoccurring fill that happened that had some syncopation that for sure. It, and the thing about it, like, that kind of made me go, oh shit, like. Uh, that has to feel good every time you play it. That yeah. that can erupt as as you know. That has to kind of be in the in the Matt Chamberlain kind of thing where the drum fill needs to be linear. Not I mean, not. I guess I'm taking it a different place, but I mean it. It can't interrupt the groove. Yeah, yeah. It needs to exist within within the groove as opposed to groove, groove, groove. Now we're gonna take a break and do a fill. Yeah, it's part part of the the interweaving of the of the rhythmic structure of the tune for sure right and and i think there's always times when we just we just rise to the occasion on the gig last second uh on the session just real quick whatever but there's times when i hear something like i'm just sitting down to like learn a song and i'm like oh that's gonna take a little bit of time yeah so when i heard that i was like wow that was like super fast and i mean it wasn't really complicated but it was a really kind of inside like you this this little reoccurring fill has to feel it's not complicated, but it's 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 integral to the song. Does that make sense? I, I may be it making does. a bigger deal of it. No, no, no. It absolutely makes sense. And on those TV gigs, like I don't know if you've done much performing like that, but like it's it no. really causes you it causes you to play uh defensively, which is a bummer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It causes me to play defensively, which is a bummer. Um you kind of tend to zero in on you sort of Zero, you sort of zoom out a little bit and focus on what you might call the, like the minimum effective beat. Like just what's the, what's the least risky, yeah. least complicated way for me to get this job done. And you're basically there on television trying to not screw up. Yeah. So the, the trick is to like, and it's a psychological game. It's like, oh gosh, how do we, pl- like, let's be a little more aggressive about this. Let's be a little bit more haphazard. How would, I'm not a jazz musician, but like, how would Dave King from the bad plus approach this with total, lack of inhibition as opposed to like, just don't, don't make a mistake. Don't, you know what I mean? Like just keep and I, tried to, I tried to do that on that, on that performance, partly for Rhett's sake to just be like, let's just make this guy feel like he's at a gig and he's having a good time. Cause that dude is stressed. Why did that train derail? 201 victims were killed Was my twin among the dead Was my twin expected to live I was here at home Waiting for my twin to return Okay, so in Nashville, you play to a click a lot obviously in the studio, but live too. And I never did that until I moved to Nashville. So tell me about working with some of the people that you're working with live, whether it's Ben Qualler or Wallflowers or even on the Conan show. I'm glad you're asking this because this is where, this is really worth talking about. Um, 
I'm either super lucky or I have kind of like deliberately sort of steered my quote unquote career in a way. Um, you know, all that stuff that you hear about like, oh, you need to be proficient with electronics. You need to be proficient with an SPDSX. You need to play to a click live. You need to be able to get in there and adjust and edit an Ableton live. Like that's just like a requirement for modern being a sideman as a drummer. I'm sure that's true. I don't at all want to steer anybody away from that or tell mm -hmm, them that's not mm -hmm. the case. But dude, I, by some miracle of God, have just avoided that. Like Brett Denon, uh, Butch Walker, Queller, uh, Hayes Carl, Robert Ellis, Aaron Tashton, Mary McBride, like Jacob, like none of these people that I play with do anything with a click at all, or there's no computer on stage yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, God, Butch still uses floor wedges like a freaking pilgrim. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's, it's bananas. Um, are you using ears? Yeah, totally. I, I am. Cause yeah. although, you know what, on that gig, actually, now that I think about it, no, I think I just use the ears as like noise canceling. I think there's, there's floor wedges for sure. Um, but I, uh, let me, let me keep on my train of thought. Oh, here. So here, this is a fun story. Um, so to your point about the idea of people doing to a click, I did one, two days actually rehearsing with Weezer, uh, because their, uh, drummer Patrick, his wife was going to have a baby and they had a really, uh, expensive, uh, fancy private gig on the books, uh, that they, you know, probably paid for their living for like a year or something. So Butch's manager is Weezer's manager. And he was like, Hey, can you come do this gig? Okay. I was born in 1981, which means I was a kid in 1996, which means if somebody's like, do you want to go play a gig with Weezer? <laughs> I don't even, I'm like in a puddle on the ground. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I went there and practiced with those guys and just, I'm, dude, I'm telling you literally, I mean, maybe, maybe you, maybe your sort of musical tastes were too elevated by that point. And I totally get that, but I was like 13 or 12 or something. So to sit there with that band at that drum kit and go, da da, boom. I was like losing my mind. Yeah. But anyway, that band has one of those antiquated ass Tama, whatever it's called with the yellow yep. dial. Yeah, right. And right. like and like a book. Like rhythm with watch. All the, yeah, totally. With all the songs. Uh, and I got there and I was like, it didn't really matter because I was just going to do this one gig and they were super sweet and super nice. Um, they just wanted to get through it. So I, I really would have had to blow it hard for them to get bummed. Um, but I was like, are there like tracks on this gig or something? Like what, what's all this? And they're like, Oh no, rivers just really needs. I think I, rivers is just, uh, I think a very, very particular dude, but I think it probably just settles an argument between him and the drummer sure. where it's like, you don't get to tell me that I played pork and beans too fast last night in Tulsa because it was 171 right here on this piece yeah, of paper. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think for some bands that works, right? I think yeah. that I, I get the idea of it sort of – it just settles the argument and it factors out the human element of like, oh, my nerves could get the best of me or maybe I'm whatever. But my friend Adam Levy and I have this ongoing conversation about this and I personally – you know, my big important opinion, I sort of fundamentally disagree with that. Like there's certainly there are some songs that have really, really narrow windows tempo wise that it, yeah, like, it kind yeah. of has to be this. And if we get three, four clicks away, that's a problem. But I think most music, I really do. I really do believe that most music. So, so unlike harmonic information, melodic information, the form of the song, the instrumentation, the tempo, as long as the singer's cool, meaning satisfied, 
it's kind of like, well, whatever. I don't know. Get the like, words out and feel. Yeah, he can get the words out. He's not choking on the words. He's not swimming in the words. Yes, he's not yep. drowning. Uh, we did it in we did it in New York last night, and we were like super jazzed because all these industry people were going to be there, and we were a little nervous. And you know, uh, it, it was a little fast. We played it at one twenty three, and then we got to Philly the next night, and we'd been out in New York all night, getting drunk until seven in the morning. So we're a little hungover, and it's a little slow. It's a little sleepy tonight, and. It's like, that's okay. Like, as long as we all agree yeah. on stage what the tempo is, I'm not sure what's so freaking holy about, oh, it needs to be at 120. Now, obviously, if there's like a tracks element going on. Oh, exactly, yeah. Of course, like yeah. I, I 100%, I totally get that. But my opinion of like the playing to the click thing is just, uh, I'll do it if somebody really wants me to do it. I, I played with Leon Bridges, did a couple gigs with him and, they did it, but ultimately I did it a couple times and I was like, can I not do this? It's just not, I'm not, it's not super fun. And they were like, oh yeah, the other drummer just did it. We just thought that's what drummers do. And I was like, can I not do that? And they were like, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, so check this out. I'll, I'll get off my high horse here, but no, this I think is great. There's, a, this is great. There's, there's a lot of hay made out of a lot of not quite almost great drummers, but this idea of putting all this um, premium on, oh, it's very important to learn how to play to the click. Playing to the click is like a skill that it's, you need to practice playing to the click and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just sort of like, I, yeah, I think I could get my wife to play to the click. The click is just a quarter note that tells you exactly where everything – you can't screw this up because it just keeps – you know what I mean? Like, did you ever take your kids? Hey, uh, did you, you were rushing there a little bit. <laughs> what are you, Steely Dan? Um, <laughs> Donald Fagan over here. But it's like, if you ever took your kids bumper bowling, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you can't hit it in the, throw it in the gutter because it's removed those, those problems. You know what I mean? Yeah. So back to Jim Scott and like, isn't that just kind of your job? I kind of feel like, no, I should, I, I am the click dude. Like I, Imagine, imagine being a guitar player and you have some apparatus on your guitar that just a steel player, for example, for yeah. your Nashville people. And there's some apparatus that just yanks the steel bar in tune. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's not the, the beauty and the art of that instrument is having the intonation together to guide that bar so that you're in tune. And the beauty of drums is you're interpreting the time and subdividing the time and presenting the time mm -hmm. as this sort of skeletal framework. A visual metaphor would be like your Pro Tools grid. I am the grid and everybody else can kind of hang off of me however they see fit. But if that if that's being outsourced by a click, that's then it's like, well, that just took away half of like what I'm supposedly being paid to do here. Right, right. And, and you know and, what I mean? Well, yes, and, and, and to your point, but I mean, even taking it a step further, it is it's it's not always like getting the slide right where it needs to be using your you know slide player analogy, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's 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 pointing the light and say, Hey, put your slide here, kind of like playing guitar hero. Sure. Press yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Press this button now. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't then you kind of miss it a little bit, but then it always tells you where to where to play again. And so sometimes what happens is if, say, the singer again is feeling it differently that night, or maybe has a tendency to, the guitar player tends to rush as the song goes on. Then you're like, then this, then sometimes the band sounds out of sync because ninety 
percent of the time you're the only one with the click. Sure, so, sure. So you you would need to have like an agreement, I suppose, with your band where it's just like, hey guys, drums aren't moving. So like, if you get antsy and you want to push ahead, like I can't. So just know that. I suspect must be what you have. Yeah, to Yeah, there's right? a little bit of that, and there's yeah, so I'm not going to get into my own personal things, but I, I'm. What you're talking about is really kind of opening up a, a really good can of worms as as far as where people are going, where people have kind of settled in with with using the click. I use it, and I think that the only thing I'll say personally, without taking away from you, what you're bringing to the table here, is that I think I'm doing it too much. I know guys in LA who do big pop gigs, and they are super spooked to play a gig down at the bar. Because they're like, wait, there's, but there's no, and they'll yes. like put, put, they'll run the click on their own iPhone for like a bar gig because they're like, I don't, I just kind of, you know, um, well, I I, you know, I saw, I saw Chris McHugh doing that when, when, I mean, God, amazing. Love him, love him uh-huh. to death. But, but it's, but I thought, but I like, I made a note because Keith Urban was playing down on Broadway and was playing at four different clubs doing like three or four songs a piece. It was a, it was a hoot, man. It was, it was a circus down there. Uh-huh. And um, and he was coming to the club that my band was playing at was one of the last uh-huh. clubs. So like, hey, listen, they're gonna come in, play as long as you can until they show up. Can the drummer Chris play your cymbals? And oh, hell yes, please do. Sure, sure. And so yeah, yeah. you know, he, he, okay, guys, one more song and and Keith's showing up. Cool. Like, and then Chris comes up. Hey, how you doing, man? Here you go. Hey, thanks a lot. And he's got his iPhone in his back pocket, going up to uh-huh. his headphones. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh. That's interesting. Well, that's got to just be a result of like, because his boss, the guy that he's playing with there is just literally used to doing that. Yeah. That way. It's you such know what a I mean? national so thing, but I, it, it's, I, it's, it's, I listen. I, I mean, I just feel like it's just, it's, uh, I need to, I need to break the mold and, and I'm, I'm working with these, these singers and there's, there's three of them and they're all lead singers of former bands, huge bands. And it's like, mm-hmm. they all have a different feel for the things. And they're like, but this is how you do it. And the band leader's like, oh yeah, well, what's the click? What's the tempo? And, but mm-hmm. they're also no one saying you have to use a click. And so, interesting. and I like, I listened to a live recording we did a few weeks ago and I'm like, oh my God, the band does not sound together at all. Like I'm right. trying to hold it down and yet they're not feeling it there. And then I can't say, Hey, uh, I know you've been in a band, a su- super successful band for 37 years, but you need more hi-hat in your mix. Right, 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 right. Well, in, on the one hand, what you're describing to me sounds almost sounds like a scenario on its face where it would be effective to have you on the click because there are so many variables. You've got three singers, which Jesus, God help you for dealing with that. Um, <laughs> Great dude. With three, three senses of time, three internal... Yeah you know, setups, three egos for better or worse. I, I don't know who the people are, but like that might actually be effective to be like, I don't know about where you're, you are versus where you are versus where you are, but I'm going to be at 120 because that's where I program the click. And that's kind of the beginning and the end of it. However, it's also possible that what you could do, especially if like you said, that nobody's like coming down on you from above saying you have to use the click. You should like turn it on. You should do like some songs with it and some songs without it. Yeah. And then just after the rehearsal, just stand around and see if anybody says anything. You no. know what I mean? See if anybody notices. Yeah, I think they would be totally. These guys are great. I think they would be totally into that. And and I think uh, a, a lot of their world is is with with a click sometimes and without a click other times. I don't think they're they're. For sure. I think I think a couple of them are, are old school and you know they don't. 
they're just they trust me so i think what uh, the point i'm making and it's interesting my phone has has switching to low power i think that's that's telling us that but i have one more thing i want to talk to you about real quick uh, but to wrap this up, I, I think what I'm doing is I'm putting extra pressure on myself and I'm taking this a little bit too far and forgetting my roots, if yeah. that makes any sense. Another thing you could well, – quickly, another thing that you can do yeah. that will strengthen your relationship with the click is that you know that uh, joke I was making earlier. Readjust the click in your – not at the gig, but like when you're practicing. Readjust the click so that it hits on the uh of beat four. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The final 16th note. So one, two, and a three, and a four, and a one, and a two, and a three, and a four, and a oh, one. So that way, when you're practicing, you have 15 16th notes to be an adult. And to, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And like to keep the time, that's on you. Yeah. And then on that 16th, 16th note, yeah. you find out how you did. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's for really sure. valuable. Sure. That's helped me out a lot. Yeah. Uh, and 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 again, this is something I'm gonna I'm going to leave in, but I, I might have edited out the other part. But I, it's so amazing and so fun to like bounce this off you. And I have I have this platform, I have this podcast to sometimes get into things that I have personal questions about, and I need advice of. And I, for years, it was always my elders or those that were experienced that like I look to. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's. I I find great joy in like this conversation with you right now, Mark. And it's like, we met when you were 12 and I'm like, Mark, I need advice. And (laughs) I mean, there was a time that I would have been like, oh no, that hurts. But now I'm just like, I love this. This is great. And I thank you, man, so much for this. Of course. I would just simply invite you to sign up for my coaching course. Of course. Um, (laughs) Of course. Um, But I have one other thing and I'm kind of, I'm kind of, kind of, put you on the spot here. I'm going to try and quickly read this as quickly as I can. There was a 20, two 2016 articles, one from Downtown Magazine and one from Modern Drummer. The first, the Downtown Magazine says, this is a quote from you, I see some guys doing, doing the self-promotion thing to death and it just seems like they're trying too hard. Guys like Keltner, Victor Andrizo, Matt Chamberlain aren't flooding social media with pictures of their offices for the day and hashtagging every drum and cymbal manufacturer on their Instagram posts. It's because they're busy, busy working, busy making high-quality music all the time. They don't need to try and prove to the internet that they're a bona fide professional. You go on and on and on. Uh, what's, re- what's not easy? Being really fucking good at the drums. From Modern Drummer in t- uh, 2016, uh, you say, uh, I have to be really organized and responsible. People skills, communication skills, organizational skills, logistic skills, they are really important. And letting people know you're interested is key too. Mm-hmm. It's the reverse of out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. So those two things made me think, okay, they, they're really important, but... Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to stress here is I'm with you, and I know my co Zach is with you. Like, the social media thing can be exhausting when we mm-hmm. see it, and we're like, enough. I mean, I've got good friends and great players that I just have to mute on Instagram because it's like, you're wearing me out. I love you, but mm-hmm. stop. Um, and, and you've mentioned before, it's like some people, they're like, I don't understand why no one's calling me because it looks like you're busy all the time. There's that. But also, how do we use it in a responsible way so people know that we're available? What is your 
take on the social media landscape the way it is now granted these were from 2016 mm-hmm. but where do you stand on this because you're kind of saying in essence not two different things completely they aren't diametrically opposed but they are like look enough of the social media but then in modern drummer you're like you have to let people know that you're interested yeah yeah okay so let me let me push back on the idea that those are two okay conflicting concepts there's the social media thing is one thing, but when I was talking about reverse out of sight, out of mind, yeah. I was talking about being social. I was talking about being around, yes. just going to go to watch your friends play. Yes. Um, I play in this jam night, uh, called the Hootenanny house band at the hotel cafe. And we just back up a bunch of artists Yeah. and that's become a real, like people kind of come around to it, you know, very sort of community oriented, whatever, everybody from the music scene who's not working that night comes down and watches us and hangs out. And it kind of, you know, sort of turns into a networky thing, but it's also just people that I really genuinely care about. And what I meant by that was I do that playing just by doing a gig. You're just out, you're watching your friends play, you're supporting somebody else's project, you're being a fan and somebody inevitably will go, Matt, Hey, what, what do you do next Tuesday? Yeah. Are you around? Dude, I was just thinking about this. Uh, as I was parking my car, I got a text and I've got this gig at this thing. And like, dude, do you want to, do you want to do it? Now you're standing there at the bar because you came to watch your friend play, right? Um, that person who just, asked, when I just asked you about that gig, I didn't shoot up out of bed at night and go, I got to call Matthew Krause for this gig. But you're there, you're hanging out, you're part of a community, you're supporting other people. And I'm going to go, oh yeah, dude. I Yeah. What you want? You want to do that thing? Oh yeah. And like, that's probably not going to happen if you're at home on the couch. And that to me is a totally different, it's a totally different approach and it's a totally different concept than the social media thing. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how many times, again, we're looking to the future uh, and as things are opening back up to, to that this concept will uh, apply. Yeah. And let me, let me point out really quickly too, because there are definitely, I have Instagram posts, like you found out that I was playing with the wallflowers because I posted it. Yeah. I am not afraid of that. I just think that that needs to be used exceptionally sparingly. And just like when you have something that you're genuinely proud of, that you really, that you think looks good, that you think would make somebody else's life better for them to see it or know it, know about it. Sure. Throw it up there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But and if it's legitimate and if it's genuine, um, if it's not, oh, I was at a jam night and Keith Urban popped up and did a song and now I'm posting on social media telling everybody that I play with Keith Urban or whatever the case may be. You know, like you see that sort of thing where it's a little bit misrepresenty, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like people kind of taking advantage of a sort of gray area. Um you know, I try not to post anything. I try to be very clear about this. This guy, Nate Morton from The Voice talked about this. Like if you're going around telling somebody that you're such a, like, um, there are a bunch of people that I've played with who are famous, who if you asked them, is Mark Stepro your drummer? They would say, I don't know who that is. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like, but like Butch or Brett Denon or uh, whatever, any of these people like, those are two two different things. So you just don't want to like misrepresent and sort of make it seem I, I get that, you know, so there's a basically what it is, Matt, is there's like a fancy media studies term for this, which is called disintermediation, which simply means that there are no longer any gatekeepers. So the good news is you no longer need a publicist or a PR campaign to let everybody know what you're doing as a musician, right? The bad news is 
you no longer need a publicist or a PR campaign to let everybody know what you're doing. Like there's no, there's no gatekeeper. So people are sort of free to craft their image and it can get a little gross and ugly if it, if it doesn't read as genuine, but I'm not, I I just, I don't want to be seen as like a hypocrite because I do post about that stuff, but kind of like once in a blue moon. And when I'm like, okay, this is cool. I dig this. This will move the needle. I want people to see this, but just maybe not like 10 times a week. Right, right, and I think it's just finding that balance. I'm, I'm still struggling with it. Um, there was a there was a cool gig that I wanted to post about. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is going the complete opposite direction. Uh, it was it was a, it was a thing that I think some of my Nashville buddies would have been like, "Oh, that's great, that's really cool." And but it was like during a week when there was like some shootings and stuff going on that oh, I'm like, yeah. I feel gross no. about posting. No, 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 yeah, anything mm-hmm. this yeah. week. Yeah. Does that no make way. sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's just, it's just read the room, dude. Like that's just not a good time. It's not a good time. You can always post that later, you know, when the yeah. dust clears, you know, from a terrible tragedy like that. And I would also posit this might be even more egotistical, but think about how cool your friends are going to think you are when they find out that you're doing that gig. Cause you're actually doing that gig and they see you doing that gig or better yet, somebody else tells them that you're doing that gig. Yeah. And then they're like, Oh man, he wasn't even like tooting his own horn about that. You know what I mean? Like that's better for you in the long run yeah. anyway than, Hey guys, guess what I'm doing? Guess what I'm doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. And, it's, and, uh, I get, maybe it's the Midwestern thing. You're just like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should say anything. And, but, it, and for me, like the home studio thing, as I'm, I'm trying to do more here, I may, I'm more apt to post something like that. Like, Hey, here's some sounds. Here's some things that I'm doing. Yep. So, I am available, you know, like yeah. we can move sessions around. We can, f- we can find time to record your song or whatever. And that's just smart business. Like there's nothing disingenuous or yeah. crappy about that. You're just letting people know that you now offer a service that maybe you weren't associated with before. Right. right you know, that's right. completely yeah. way, as far as I'm concerned, in the bounds. Also, just like if you're between gigs and you let your friends know that you're looking for a gig, like that's not shady or whatever that's just like people don't know unless you tell them right 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 you know just do i look like a jerk right now just ask yourself that question and that'll kind of like i think that that will kind of guide you Son? in the way yeah <laughs> he'll tell you he knows he knows he totally knows i can hear the eyes rolling these days i mean i'm, I'm practically deaf but i can still, <laughs> still how old's your son five five yep he's a cutie he's dude. Be- yeah he's my best buddy now like he's totally yeah yeah he's give so it time fun. give it time no, no i'm just kidding yeah. you're a drummer though so it's like they're not i mean they're not gonna want to like butt up against the old man in that classical way are they um the older one didn't um you know uh i mean they don't really care too much about it. the younger one is is into music and i think there was a time a couple of years ago he would come to a couple gigs and he th- you know his friends would tell me they he talked about it but he would never yeah. tell me but he thought it was cool not that yeah. I, you know i had to find out through second hand and, and then now uh as he's getting to hipper hipper music and becoming uh, a a great musician he's mm. he's my gigs aren't as cool as they used to be, which is, <laughs> you know, which is, which I'm like, I, I, especially when he plays like some new, something that he's listening to, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I wouldn't think that my gig is cool either if I, lis- if yeah. I was listening to that. <laughs> I, I love Tim Impala as much as the next guy, but I fully celebrate the dad rock lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but not the dad bod. You're running. You're taking care of yourself. No, <laughs> Anyways, well, tell me uh, quickly what the rest of the year is like. Is our, I mean, uh, uh, we're all kind of up in the air and hoping for change and and stuff like yeah. that. But what uh, is it? Is it? Is anything predictable for you for the rest of 2021? I am. I am optimistic. I am. I can never remember which one's bullish and bear. I'm bullish. Bullish. See, I know stocks about hmm. about 2021. Um, I think that stuff will start coming back. I'm actually pleased to speak to you now because I've had some stuff kind of turn back on. I'm gonna do Corden and Good Morning America, fly to Texas and do a record, and then fly to Louisiana and do a workshop for a week. Um, and there's something that just sort of feels good about talking to you with that on the agenda, yeah. as opposed to at this point in time a year ago when we were just sort of like, uh, yeah, right, know, right, is, right. It just, is it just yeah. like this forever? Right. If, if so, maybe what's the point of even having a podcast? Um, so it feel it feels like things are coming back. So I have stuff going uh, between now and the middle of June, and I, I kind of have no reason to believe that it'll – I think things, I, I, you know, this could be totally wishful thinking, but I, I have to believe that we as, as drummers and musicians are, are hopefully about due for a little bit of a renaissance when people are going to want to or be able to come back together and, and do projects. Gosh, I, it's been such a, it's been a long time coming, man. And you have been a supporter of the podcast for a long time. And I thank you for that. I'm so glad that you reached out to me so long ago and um, you just you fit this great, just ideal working drummer. You know, like mm-hmm. you're doing all these things, and like I I can find you easily online. You know, I can find out a lot of information and see things that you've done, and and with people that we recognize, and articles that have been written about you, and all that stuff. But still, I think a lot of people are like, "Who's Mark?" You know, again, yeah, sure. but. That's what I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, ho- I, I know there's so many listeners that are like, that's what I want to be doing. That's, you know, that's great. You're mm-hmm. doing it, man. You're doing it's, it's amazing. It's really great. Big fan of the pod, big fan of the pod and what you guys do. And, um, I will continue to listen to it and it's, it's hip to that. Po- so sort of what I was saying earlier about Thomas Lang, again, I'm like just randomly beating up on Thomas Lang, but it's <laughs> like th- this podcast, like, sh- like that kid in England that Zach interviewed who does all that Beatles stuff. Oh, that was me. Oh, was that you? Yeah. Um, the guy who was talked about, he has his, he's in some kind all, of like a. All you need is uh, drums. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know who that dude Joe was. Joe Montague. You know what I mean? Yeah. So cool. Like just, and, and this particular platform that you guys have introduces folks like that to people like me who like, I wouldn't, I guess what I mean about like the Thomas Langs of the world don't need you and they right. don't need, but Joe Montague probably does. And I kind of do too. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're uncovering guys who are doing cool stuff that I wouldn't really know about. So I very much appreciate it. I put myself in that same category as, as the listener as well, you know, uh, it, because it's like, I need to, because I can relate more to the things that you're doing. I'm not, I, I can't play like Thomas Lang and I can't, I'm not doing clinics. I'm, you know, and I want to sure. do the, I want to do more of the things like most of our guests are doing, you know, right. Right. You know, not mm-hmm. all of them, but it's, you know, it's, it's great to have Peter Erskine on you sure. know, and, and, and it'd be great to talk to Thomas as well. And like, mm-hmm. but what I want to extract from Thomas is Thomas, what can you tell me that's going to be helpful yeah. to, to my friends that are doing kind of what I'm doing, you know, please. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. 
my phone is just hit 10%, man. It's, it's, we, uh, we did it. I, I, we did it. I think you feel good. Did we win? Did we win the battery, the phone battery contest? Yeah, we, we, yes, that's, we won at music. We won at music. Yeah. You've got to let me know when you're in Nashville, man. I will. I absolutely will. Mark, I can't thank you enough, man. This has been just a total blast. And I, I just, I really appreciate this and your insight and, and, and all this stuff. It's, it, you've just, just, a, it's an honor to have you uh, here. I, I love how our history, how we're connected. And, yeah. um, and then it's almost come, kind of come full circle and you've added uh, to this narrative, this constant narrative here on the podcast. I, I appreciate it so much, man. Pleasure's all on this side of the table. Yeah, man. Well, cool. Well, have a great rest of your week. Have a good session tomorrow. And um, keep in touch with me, friend. I will. All right. I will. Be good. Okay, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. All right, bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Mark Steprow. That was a super blast. And... Uh, I, I again, uh, Mark is just uh, another one of those uh, people that I, I just really hope we get a chance to hang out and connect in person. Uh, I know he plays in Nashville from time to time, so it's going to give us a chance to connect. I really uh, hope you all followed through with this conversation and, and got as much out of it as I did. It was really a lot of fun to connect with Mark, and uh, I'm honored to call him a friend. And uh, So we wish him continued success, and uh, we appreciate him being a fanboy of the podcast as well, if I can call him out on that. So anyways, stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's turn at hosting the podcast. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Keep in touch, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.